them are more than pals Our show can be a little gay But if you're not, that's okay You can listen and have fun either way Xena, Star Wars, Doctor Who Guests in music and reviews Game of Thrones, why Nona too? She promised there's something for you She nerds out We're girls that like girls That like dirty things Hello and welcome to the She Nerds Out podcast. I'm Kat. I'm Wendy. And I'm Tara. <laughs> On today's episode, it's Happy Xena Day. Yay! <laughs> and what better way to celebrate Xena Day than the walking encyclopedia of Xena? <laughs> the man, the myth, the legend, Stephen L. Sears, joined us today uh, on the, the most appropriate day of the year. The Xena holiday. I took yeah, off work today. I mean, Saturday, did. too, but I did take off work for this. So when we recorded it, it we failed to mention at the time uh, when we were talking to Stephen, but it was actually the the day, September 4th, 1995. Five. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes. Is the premiere date of Xena Warrior Princess. And Tara was nine. Kind of, Tara was nine years old. I was, no, 11. Sorry. Can't count. I was 18. I had just turned 18. Yep. I was 11. Wait, what's right? What day I was, was 11. It? Uh, September 4th. Oh, 19. I was still seven. I was still seven. Oh. Mm-hmm. Sorry, Wendy. I was. Wendy, how old were you? <laughs> <laughs> not, not that much older. Well, yeah, I guess I was. I was, uh, what's 88? I can't think right now. 20. 20. Um, 23? 24? Yeah. Like eight. This is how tired. I don't know. <laughs> okay. Twenty-seven. Something. Math is hard. I was Lucy's what? age. I was the same age as Lucy when she started the uh, show. Okay. Our birthdays are pretty like a month and a half away. That's fun. So that's what, uh, and, what matters. And Steve had been on the show previously because you guys talked to him up at the Zenite retreat mm-hmm. in twenty. It must have been twenty nineteen. Yeah, yep. had to be. That was it. Uh, but he he joined us again, and you know. We say it in the interview, but like I could listen to this guy talk for mm-hmm. hours, and we did. Yes, yeah. <laughs> look, if you've never heard Steve, if you're a fan of the show Zena, and you've never heard Steven Sears talk about writing for the show and just the show in general, what went into the scenes and the it's fascinating to listen to. We're just sitting around spellbound, like we needed a little fire, a little campfire, <laughs> just sit around and let them tell stories because mm-hmm. it's very interesting. And he remembers a lot. He remembers stuff. Like some of the actors are like, oh, do you remember this episode? It's like, what was that? Was well, I on that show? I don't remember. Uh, but Stephen remembers everything. Mm-hmm. He does. And there were points in the interview where I I legitimately got chills yep. and I teared up yes. once a little mm-hmm. bit. Yep. Uh, and wanted to so go yeah, back I, and rewatch on it just to, after hearing some of the behind the scenes. Exactly. And the way he explains so some scenes. Oh, sorry. Well, yeah, no, he didn't know. But yeah, he, he explains like what, like here's what's, you'll hear that, you know, what's going on in the scene, like under the conversation, like what's deep down, what is happening. And I just like, nah, I gotta watch it again now. Yep. Yeah. It's crazy. Like, you know, at, at the surface, it's sort of like this campy fantasy show, but they were really serious about what they were doing with these characters and the emotions and, you know, the backstory. Like, they took these characters very seriously, mm-hmm. and that's I think that's why we love them so much. Mm-hmm. Let's take a listen. Our guest this week is beloved amongst fans of the iconic show, Xena Warrior Princess. And he was there from the very beginning. Please welcome the charming and funny 
Stephen L. Sears. Welcome. <laughs> Me. <laughs> Stephen, welcome hey back to the show. Thank you. How's everybody doing? You know. Good. Okay, Good. there we go. In there. Incredible you know. effusive response. We're on Zoom. We're awake. Exactly. Um, barely. Yeah. Barely. It'd be more fun to do this in person, but you know, we're, mm-hmm. we're making do. <laughs> it would be. And we did. And the last time we did that, it was That's chill. Right. We had a great time. That yeah. was fun. So we're going to talk some Xena. It is Xena month on the She Nerds Up podcast. So oh, who better to talk to than, than you? Well, Lucy, Renee. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, but who gave them their words? That's I'm right. here. Right. <laughs> Without you, they it would have been like you know a silent picture from mm-hmm. back in the and day, and still a popular silent picture. <laughs> Very true. It would have done okay. Still had fighting. Good. Yeah. There you go. That's funny. We never did a silent episode. <laughs> oh my god. Oh. We never did an old style. Oh my god. I can't believe we missed. That. <laughs> you would have got there eventually, right? If that would have been awesome. <laughs> that would have yeah. been fun to see with the old know. black and white grain and the, the placards coming up. Mm. Uh, I feel like uh, didn't we missed it? Wasn't there one that had <laughs> something like that? Maybe not. Uh, well, we had the the um, day in the life where we had up yeah, the, the blackout. That's what I'm thinking mm-hmm. about. Yeah. Oh, how did we miss that? Uh, oh man! <laughs> oh no! Half not taken. <laughs> uh, so let's start at the beginning, Steve. Um, when did you first hear about the sh- like Xena? And um, were you first sent a script? Was it a pitch? How, how did, what was your first impression of the idea of the show? <laughs> well, I was 12 years old, just out of grade <laughs> school. When now the, um, uh, let me see if I can give you a little bit of the prep for this. Um, my first, the first show I ever worked on was a show called Riptide. That was back in 1984. And there's a poster back there for Riptide. <laughs> and uh, Riptide was three detectives who lived on about two hunks and one geeky nerd very popular in the 1980s and of course you know all they could do was chase after girls and solve crime three guys living on a boat Hmm. um however (laughs) it was my first job in the business and the executive producer for that was babs grayhowski and babs was one of maybe two or three women at that time who were showrunners on action adventure shows Mm. And she and I, you know, we just got along great. My partner at the time was Burt Pearl. Uh, we broke in together and we had this wonderful group working together on that show. So as with most of these stories in Hollywood, when you have a good group and everybody loves each other's work, uh, if you move on to other shows, you tend to work together. You know, it's like if I'm doing a show, I'll call her. She's doing a show. She calls me. So one day I get a call from Babs. And she says, I just started working on this show. It's a spinoff of Hercules. Now, I had only heard about Hercules because about a year before, um, I had had a meeting over at Renaissance Pictures when they were planning to do Hercules. And David Icke was uh, running the development department. And he told me, yeah, we're doing this Hercules. And I said, oh, Hercules, that's kind of a fun franchise. And he goes, we're going to do it a little bit different, you know, a little more tongue in cheek and campy and have some fun with it. And I didn't hear anything about it. So Babs now calls me and I tell her, well, I I know about the the series. And she said, yeah, um, the spinoff we're doing, there's a character on the original Hercules series, though, that I think you'd really love to write. And I said, oh, which one? And she said, well, it's a character called Salmonius. (laughs) Not where so, I thought it could go. <laughs> no. so I'm like, all right, cool. I'll uh, do my research and, you know, I'll set up a meeting. 
So we set up this meeting and Babs was actually the supervising producer for Xena. For the first six episodes, you can see her name on there as a supervising producer. And so I went in uh, and I met um, Rob and um, RJ, obviously, and Liz, you know, all the people who were already on the show. They hadn't started shooting the pilot for Xena yet, but Lucy had already been cast. Uh, and as a side note, I believe that's when I first met Renee, because when I entered the bungalow and opened the door, I hit somebody and it was <laughs> Renee. Oh, my God. <laughs> and I didn't know who it was. All I knew was that she was in there doing, I think, her second audition. Wow. And so our first, you know, words were, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no problem. And that was it. So anyway, I go in and um, this is what they call a meet and greet. So basically, it's so the rest of the production can take a look at this new guy and see whether they want to work with him or not. Um, you know, writing talent is one thing, but if you just can't work with a person in the office or in the room, it's just not going to work. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean you have to love them, but you have to have a good working relationship. So I go in and I meet everybody. And uh, because of my prep, I always go in with a lot of questions because I want to focus in on what they're trying to do. So I had seen the uh, episodes on Hercules uh, with Xena, and they told me what they were thinking, what they're planning. And, it, and a lot of it wasn't set in stone at the moment, because at the beginning of every series, you're exploring things. And so I had these questions. And one of the questions I had was about the use of gods and demigods. And I said, on Hercules, you've got gods, you've got Zeus and you know Ares and everything. But what about the demigods? And, um, you know, Rob was kind of like, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, I mean, okay. I said, for example, let's say, um, uh, let's say Gabrielle gets uh, kidnapped by some sort of a cult and their God is either Hypnos or Morpheus, one of the, the sleep gods. And I just made this up right on the spot. <laughs> and it was, of course, ended up in Dreamworker. Um, when I was done with that, you know, hypothetical situation, Rob looks at me and says, that's a great idea. And I said, yeah, yeah, it's a great idea. But anyway, so the question is, <laughs> and so um, after I left, I came up with, I think, four or five possible story ideas. And that was one of them. And I submitted those and they wanted to do um, uh, that one, Dreamworker. So I wrote the first draft of Dreamworker and they were fully staffed at the time, um, but they wanted me to contribute to the show. So, you know, RJ Babs uh, asked me if I would wanted to like, you know, they wanted me to come on and work on the show. The problem is I had been a producer on other shows and there was no producing position. Mm. So what I agreed originally was to be a creative consultant so that I could work with them and not be so crucial that I couldn't leave my options open elsewhere. Um, And then after like four episodes, Babs decided to leave the show and I went to RJ and I said, you have a producing slot open. You know my background. And RJ, apparently, he said, oh, that's true. Well, let me talk to uh, let me talk to Rob. And Rob said, eh, let me talk to Sam. And Sam <laughs> said, I don't know, talk to RJ. And somehow I ended up you know, with the job. And that's how, that's how I got in there. Amazing. Yeah. And was it a traditional writer's room? Was it, you know, everybody in a room hashing <laughs> out, breaking stories? Or would you guys go off on your own rooms and um, write your, your scripts? Well, there's no real traditional um, it depends on the series. Every series has a slightly different, of course, sitcoms do it completely differently than, than one hour episodic. Uh, but in general, uh, the way we worked it, uh, the way I was familiar on most shows is 
we would have general meetings to discuss things about where we think the show is going, where we might want it to go. And then everybody has ideas for stories. So during the meeting, we'll just throw out, what if this, what if that, what if this, what if that? And the ones that kind of stick to the wall, um, uh, Rob and RJ were the ones running the room. So they would say, well, you know, why don't you go off and think about that? And so I'd go off and I'd write up a paragraph for one of the episodes, and then it would be circulated among the entire staff. Then we would get together and we would discuss that paragraph. And if it looked like it was viable, then if um, the writer would be sent to story. So you're basically uh, writing out a beat sheet for the story, you know, like a high school outline of each mm-hmm. scene. Then that is sent around to all the offices and you repeat the process every time. So it is a group effort in the fact that we discuss everything, but you are by yourself coming up with all the creative aspects. Then when we are in the meetings where we're discussing the beat sheet or when we get to the meetings discussing the actual scripts, um, we basically go through it scene by scene and people who have suggestions or comments or questions, it's voiced at that time. And depending on how the room is run, um, Either we solve a problem right there in the room, or we just say to the writer, this is something you need to do. You need to deal with this. Is this a problem? Can you adjust this? And then we move on. Uh, And the way I personally work is um, I problem solve as things come up. Hmm. So when a discussion is brought up, something is brought up in a room for a particular scene or a point, I'm already trying to solve the problem. So generally for me, By the time we move on, I already know what my solution is. And then this other little department in my brain is now rewriting the rest of the script Mm -hmm. so that I can adjust all our future comments in in that context that I know I've made that change. So and and sometimes it gets a little maddening because I have to remember I have to remind everybody of what the previous note was and say, but I'm adjusting that in my mind. (laughs) And um, (laughs) it's it's not a very common I want to say ability, but it's, it is something that I do. I'm, I'm sure other people do it as well, but it's not that common. Hmm. Um, so what will happen? I have to explain to people at the beginning of a meeting. I'll say, look, when you give me a note, you're going to see a lot of this. <laughs> I'm going to, Don't assume it's because I am being defensive and I hate your note. <laughs> it means that I'm working. Yeah. <laughs> Peter is processing. Exactly. So. Wow. Do you remember any of those ideas you you sent that weren't chosen uh, that you wish really had been or maybe got picked up later on or somewhere I have a copy of them. Oh, and literally I'm sitting here I'm right next to my computer and uh, I am <laughs> I'm the poster boy for the series Hoarders. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I am so organized. No, I didn't say organizers. I said hoarders. <laughs> Big difference. Um, yeah. Uh, I am, you know, I'm a huge technophile, huge computer geek. Uh, you know, I was there when we went from typewriters to computers. <laughs> <laughs> and since then I became like the person who would like fix everybody's computers and got into it. Mm-hmm. So you can't see it, but underneath my desk, there is a stack of hard disks. Um, several stacks of hard disks about this big each, just all lined up back here, plus over behind my cabinet here from every computer I've ever owned. Whoa. And first of all, I have this whole thing of like, okay, I'm smart enough to get 
information off of your computer. I know people can do it with mine. So no way am I going to let that hard disk out of my house. Mm -hmm. But it also means that I have kept everything that I've ever documented on a computer. Wow. So that question you just asked, um, I actually, I'm trying to remember it though. Um, I had actually found that document. I know I still have it where I have five of the ideas and it's like, while we're talking, I'm tempted to like, see if I have it on this. Yeah, I mean, if you'd like to find it. Right <laughs> <now>. <laughs> we have time, uh, like, as we're talking, I'm just going to like casually look over here and I, I gotta, to hear those. let me see if I can do any type of a search here that'll bring it up. But, and of course it's going to be like in, in word one. So right. <laughs> this who, file cannot be opened. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> who in the world would be able to, but then again, I can always open it up in a, a notepad. Um, right. All right. I'm just going to run that Read as a me file or whatever. <laughs> as a, yeah, exactly. As a search. Um, but anyway, I do remember when I did last year, which was a few years ago, I last saw it. I think, I think um, of the five ideas on there, um, three of those ideas, one of them became Dreamworker, and two of the other ideas actually did become either episodes or parts of episodes later on. No writer throws everything out. You, you just don't. You know, it's always lodged in the back of your mind. Um, this would be so funny. But I mean, I'm, I'm now I'm like, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm basically powering up the enterprise at this point. <laughs> like 10 switches go yes. on. You know, and you, you see... I, it took me a long time to recognize my particular, I don't want to use, you know, clinical terms, but my particular OCD <laughs> is um, if you bring something like this up. Oh no, you're not going to be let it go. It's my mission. <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna I must you in a do this. I, pretty much. And I, that's, people have known me for that. It's like three days later, I'll call them and I'll say, it's metallic. <laughs> like, what so yeah I'm, I'm just right now seeing if uh if i've got the uh where's that file sure. go for scripts it. oh no no believe me go on okay okay <laughs> um i have a question about because I, I might find a whole bunch of other things here in Ooh, this fun. this is great oh, we can just do this like every couple of weeks just treasure troves hard drive yeah can, pull out a random disc and see what you, you can tell oh i don't want to get my my box of uh you know 1.3 diskettes yeah um, hard, hard disc. you can you can tell i'm serious when i pick up my trackball and i do this oh, to the bottom boy. so it won't slide on the desk. <laughs> gotta get, I love this. Here we go. So side of Steve, we, we rarely get to see. Literally, and because these are all different shows, but uh, okay. So anyway, oh, wait, here's one that says, oh, oh no, that's has an X in it. And I thought that might be one. It's actually a Christmas story for some oh. of us. So, anyway, go ahead. Um, <laughs> what were the studio network notes like back then? Were they very much involved or could they, they just kind of let you guys do your thing? What was, how, how involved were, were the, the higher ups? I just found an entire folder called Xena going back to 1995. Hell yes. <laughs> <laughs> you should see this. How many, oh, hundred, let's say 85 different oh, files here. All of them, different wow. types of stories. There's orphan of war. There's one called Peasant Girl. I don't know what that's referring oh, to. Let's okay. see what the I oldest one is. Can we yes. like assign parts? We could just read the episode. <laughs> oh, and a, mini, a mini table read? Yeah. And a lot of these things just come up with notions. So like usually when I write these things up, there's a whole bunch of one-liners at the beginning of it, which make no sense to anybody else, except right. it's just the way my fractured mind works. 
And so this one says, this one's called Wounded. And it says, Salmonius is the first citizen. Interesting. Ah, this became the greater good. Oh, wow. He became first. Ah. <laughs> so funny. Uh, it's, and literally, just, I'm throwing it up here. And um, this was not for anybody to see. This is just me trying mm -hmm. to structure something. And it says, the teaser, Zena showing Gabrielle the, the whistles for Argo. Mm -hmm. Messenger arrives and tells her that the warlord is attacking the valley. First citizen wants to talk to her. They reach the tavern, find raiders attacking and looking for the first citizen. They run them off. First citizen is Rita Salmonius. And I spelled Salmonius wrong in every one of these. <laughs> Suddenly, someone shoots a dart into Xena. Oh. Mm. So we had already discussed Callisto coming up at this mm -hmm. point. Nice. Um, she reacts, pulls it out, smells the tip and worries. <laughs> <laughs> Blackout. And then mm -hmm. act one, I just got like one paragraph. Sal explains his predicament, telling how he became the first citizen selling snake oil remedies. Xena <laughs> seems to be in a hurry to get this done. She wants to take the initiative. Gabrielle is worried this isn't like her. She is usually more considered in her planning because she knows she's poisoned, I guess. Xena, uh, and then the next one, Xena loses a battle. Gabrielle has to save her. I remember that when I was, came up with this, I wanted to reverse that. I wanted to make sure that Gabrielle was now in a position to save the day. Wow. Uh, one of the things, in, and remember the question you just asked me a second ago, because I want to no get problem. back to that. But of course. one of the things we discussed at the beginning um, was a flaw that you find in a lot of TV shows that have two leads. Generally, one is the lead who has the name on the banner, mm -hmm. and the other one is the sidekick. And I remember saying, not as an ultimatum, I just casually mentioned in a meeting, I said, I don't believe in sidekicks. Mm -hmm. I said, sidekicks are the, uh, the props that you kill off at the end of the first season so that people will tune in the next season. They're kind of mm -hmm. useless and they just exist. Mm -hmm. And everybody agreed with that. Um, and we did not want to get to the point where Gabrielle was just standing in the background going, get him, Zena, get him, Zena, get him, Zena. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> I remember we angst during the baby tossing episode because that's all she did. You know, she participated by grabbing the baby, but she literally was back there and get him, Zeno, get him, Zeno. And so we decided that Gabrielle had to have a solid progression that was not just a, um, uh, not just a convenience for us. In other words, we didn't want to do this just because, well, you know, we don't want her to be a sidekick. So we want to pretend like she's important. We, we felt she had to be. And so obviously the relationship between the two characters uh, folded in with that perfectly. So this was one of the uh, episodes where I said, uh, I kind of both the question in my mind is I thought, what if Gabrielle was the Xena of this episode, which mm. obviously is what you know came out of it. So yeah, there's a whole bunch of other notes here, but this is this is kind of funny. Ooh, what other yeah. stuff do I have? But anyway, well, I mean, <laughs> speaking of that episode, though, uh, I mean that's one of the most iconic episodes of the show. I mean, definitely that first season, but of the show generally. Mm -hmm. um, so when you say that the, you know, giving Gabrielle, uh, building up her character and making her more important to the story and finding that through the relationship, was their relationship sort of just natural? Or was that something that you guys were like, yeah, no, this, this has to be a huge part of, of what the show is now. Uh, there's no yes and no for any of that. So mm -hmm. the thing is that every TV show, uh, unless it's adapted from a novel or unless you actually chart out five seasons right at the beginning, which a lot of TV series now are doing because of the way we stream, they're basically novels. Mm -hmm. uh, 
you, at a certain point, as you begin to develop it, it, it takes on its own life. Um, with everybody's contributions, um, the characters become real. And just as all of you are real, I could write stories that you could do, but you will live those stories differently. Even if you do them together, you're going to live them individually. So um, when we started out the series, we were looking for having a successful series. We wanted to have fun. Everybody in this business wants to have fun. And we wanted to you know, get another season. But in the way that I write, and fortunately, in this particular group, we all had the same mindset. We don't believe in just doing action for the sake of action. We don't believe in doing comedy for the sake of comedy. We don't believe in doing anything that's not rooted in character first. So when we started the series, um, I had made a comment about their relationship. Uh, I said, I actually said, we're going to have a very large um gay lesbian following and you know some of the people in the office were like why would you think that and i said well my first show was three guys on a boat (laughs) (laughs) and back then you didn't have the internet for fan fiction but there were news magazines that went out that fans would put together uh, fanzines and of course i subscribed to one for riptide and almost all the fanzines dealt with their relationships with how they regarded each other and um, on every level. I mean, you know, on romantic levels and just on brotherly levels or anything like that, but the relationships were a lot closer. So what I realized with the, all the subsequent series I was doing, every time there were two leads um, of the same gender, this type of fan fiction was out there. Now, uh, as a backstory, you know, I come I come out of theater. I've been doing theater since I was 12 years old. So being around the LGBTQ community was just Tuesday, you know. Mm-hmm. So for me, as I as I kind of explained this, I said, anytime a dispossessed group of our society finds validation in any of our media, they grab it because they're not given it. They have to grab it. And I said, so you know, it's gonna happen. Mm-hmm. And thank God, nobody went, oh, we have to avoid that. We have to stay away from that. Okay. Nobody in the room, which by the way, gets back to your, your studio question. Which we'll get to. Um, so what we just figured is like, we're going to let these characters evolve the way they evolve. And anybody looking at these characters and the way they came together and the adventure they were going on. I mean, in retrospect, was it really a surprise? that they would have this incredibly close bond as they went forward. I mean, even if, however you ship it, it it doesn't matter. That bond had to happen or Gabrielle would have been totally unnecessary. We would have gotten rid of her. She would have been an annoyance Mm -hmm. as opposed to us embracing the annoying aspect at the beginning and then allowing the audience to watch this incredible growth that she never would have had without meeting Zena Mm -hmm. and the incredible growth that Zena had that she would never have had if she hadn't met Gabrielle. I've always said Sins of the Past was a suicide episode. Mm-hmm. Zena was trying to kill herself. Mm-hmm. She had nothing. She had nothing, nothing left. When she buried her weapon, she was saying, I am leaving myself open to the next warlord to kill me. Mm-hmm. And then she hears the noise in the distance and she goes over there and she sees this young girl standing up against warlords. And there's a part of her that says, I was like that. That was me. What happened? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So 
Um, you can see oh, how my mind Steve. works. Oh, <laughs> Watch that one. There's so much good stuff in there. We could, we could just talk about one episode. I know. Amazing. Um, so now to the studio. Um, <clears throat> uh, Rob Tappert, since he was basically the showrunner, um, you know, Rob and Sam at the beginning, and then Sam went off to do his, uh, his feature film stuff um, and American Gothic. Um, Rob was the one who had to deal with the studio. Now, any show that has a showrunner, uh, the showrunner is basically the point person with the studio and network. So all of the suggestions, all of the comments, and all of the sometimes crap that comes down from the studio has to filter into the showrunner. And then the showrunner mm-hmm. figures out what we're going mm-hmm. to do. So, you know. mm-hmm. so if you have a horrible showrunner, well, it can be pretty bad. Mm-hmm. Um, most of this type of stuff, Rob dealt with. We didn't have to deal with it. So I remember. Um, Rob mentioning in the opening credits, there was one shot um, where the studio was concerned because it looked like um, it looked like a very seductive scene with Zena looking seductive and what looked like a woman walking toward her. And they were like, you got to get rid of that scene because that, you know, the middle mm. America is not going to like that. <laughs> And in fact, it was Draco because he had the long hair. So. <laughs> and it's still in, it's, it left in, we left it in. It's still in the mm. opening credits. Um, but that was the one they mistook, but it told you where they were at the time. Mm-hmm. So now I've heard um, Rob and a couple of other interviews say that uh, the studio also said they didn't want any clips where the two of them were together because they were worried about the same thing. Uh, I don't remember that. I wasn't there for that. Uh, I will say, though, that as the show became more popular, um, the studio backed off on a lot of things with us because we were doing well and they trusted us. I want to look at it that way. Anyway, mm-hmm. the president of universal television during that time was a guy named Dan Philly. And I knew uh, Dan since I started, he was actually one of the um, studio executives from NBC for Riptide. So I knew him from back then, really cool guy, awesome guy. And he was like, look, you know, if this is working, people are happy you seem to be walking that line, which I always snickered at is because, yeah, because we're not walking a line. Um, he said, you know, just go forward. You know, he was also one of the old style studio executives where if they wanted something, they would, they would turn, they would trust you. They would turn to you and they would say, we need to have, um, can you have a little more titillation? Cause we like that. That helps give us more titillation, but they wouldn't tell us to do it. They wouldn't say, this is how you do it. They wouldn't say redesign the costume. So her boobs pop out. Um, <laughs> but they would just leave it to us. And so we would say, oh, this scene where they're in the tavern talking about these really intense things that are going on in their life, we'll put it in a hot tub. <laughs> <laughs> and that actually is how the hot tub tradition began, because we thought, well, that makes it titillating. And yet we lose nothing from the story. And it's it actually is kind of a bonding thing. So, you know, put it in there. Definitely. <laughs> you got a maze on the road. <laughs> yeah. and then, then watching dailies and you hear somebody say, um, where's the soap? And we go. Do we leave that in? <laughs> yeah. yeah. We'll leave that one in. <laughs> wow. And so uh, so I don't remember when during, as far as from the fan side of it, I don't remember when the term subtext started to become a word that the fans threw around. And it's obviously this, you know, has become its own, this, uh, its own thing, the subtext of the show. But it sounds to me like it was just very organic uh, mm-hmm. for you guys. But like, when did you st- when did you when did you start to hear of the fans 
uh, you know, LGBTQ plus specifically those fans latching on to what we would call the subtext of the show. Was there like any kind of feedback you were getting? Were you then more inclined to kind of give us a little more like wink, wink, nudge, nudge moments like the hot tub? Was that, were you, were you receptive to what the fans were, were asking for? Uh, yes and no. With the internet, um, obviously we had direct access to the fans and, um, we always made it a rule that we were not going to follow where the fans want us to go. We hope they will follow with us, but at the same time, we kind of adapt to things. I, I remember uh, I was the one who was uh, because of my geeky nature. I was the one who was online first. I was really into that. Uh, I was the one who found the first AOL chat room uh, that this, uh, that Laura, a 14 year old girl had set up for Xena. <laughs> and so I was listening in. And um, for those of you who remember back then, uh, I never hid who I was. I wasn't a lurker. I would go in and I would say, this is who I am. Not because I wanted everybody to go, ooh, but um, I would say, uh, talk freely. I said, I will leave the room um, if if one of two things happens. If one, you start talking about episodes you want to see, because I can't ethically listen to that. Or two, if I become the center of conversation, because that's not the point. And I said, if I do that, don't take offense. I'm just... You know, that's my own little ethics. Uh, but I was able to listen in. And so I do remember that at the beginning of this, Rob, uh, I, I told Rob this was going on. And he said uh, something to the effect of, yeah, well, okay, it's good they're talking about the show. Um, but, you know, we don't really care what they're saying there. We got to keep focused. I'm like, okay. And like an episode would come back and he would come out and he would come into my office. He'd say, so um, what the fans think? <laughs> <laughs> hmm. So, and, and, and again, I was kind of looking for this because I was, because of my background. So I was a little more of aware of it. It was happening. Um, the early discussions among the fans of where this was going was extremely interesting to me. And I tried my best not to get involved in it because I wanted everybody to interpret it the way they wanted to. And I, one thing I've been always, I, I'm always amazed by the Xena fandom. I, I've been on other shows that have fandom and certainly a lot of my friends have huge fan bases on their shows. Um, and I'm not saying it, I've said this when I've been on podcasts for other shows, the Xena fandom is the most incredible fandom I've ever been involved with for a number of reasons. And one of them uh, is that at the beginning, keeping in mind, this was obviously in the you know middle nineties, there was still some contentiousness as if people were trying to protect the girls from being lesbian. Mm -hmm. It's like, mm -hmm. we have to protect them. Don't, don't say that. We want <laughs> yeah. them, you know? And I'm like, right. oh, okay, good. You're going to protect me from what? Being a straight white male. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> um, so it, it was a little bit of that going on and there was some fire that went back and forth. I actually, again, as I record everything, um, I remember a few of the transcripts that I just were so amazing. I, I, kind of kept, kept uh, track of them. Mm -hmm. And what I started to see, though, with the Xena fans, which I loved, is that the people who wanted to maintain their shipper stance became friends. They began talking about it with respect to each other, mm -hmm. as opposed to, no, you're that camp, I'm this camp. Mm -hmm. um, and then it was kind of like, then we got into the, the major contention was, um, do we ship Xena with Ares? And I'm like, okay, so what you've already done is you defaulted to the idea that she's with Gabrielle. And now you're just talking about a jealousy thing. Right, right. <laughs> and I'm like, that's totally cool. <laughs> I love that. 
So the characters evolved. Now, had they evolved in a different in a different direction, well, we'd be having a different conversation here. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that that going back to the studio, uh, one of the things that did come up was that they the studio did say, "Can you either somehow remind people that you know Zena still likes guys and Gabrielle still likes guys?" But they never said they can't like each other. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, what you have described to me is either the ultimate bisexual um, or what you've described to me is, and I don't have a, I don't have a word for this because, you know, straight white male, how, how would I know this, is many of my friends who were lesbian but were denied that identification and fought themselves and then finally came out, liberated themselves. So I said, you're kind of describing that. And I remember thinking to myself, and that's going to be Gabrielle. <laughs> that she's going to fight a lot of this internally. And so, you know, when we got to the Perdicus episodes with the marriage, mm-hmm. everything um, that, you know, we all get together and we talk about how we're going to put it together. And, and some of us will come up with little things that go into somebody else's script. But it's always the original writer that, that really is the, the owner of the script. <clears throat> but we always contribute things. And I remember when we got to that thing. I'm like, okay, I know where I'm leaning on this and where I'm going to, I'm going to lean into the, the curb on this one, because what's happening with Gabrielle is that she's gone this far with Zena and suddenly this reminder of what her hidden past was, what her past was when she, you know, well, you could say denied. Mm-hmm. Um, there's that one time, this is difficult for me because I'm, I'm not a gay woman. So I can't speak with authority from this. I I can only say I've had friends that have gone through this where their coming out process is so scary that sometimes they, what I call, they run home to mama and mama is where they were. At least they could deal with it. It was familiar enough. So when Perdiccas comes in, She's questioning a lot of things and she thinks, okay, now I'm questioning where I am and why I'm here. So I'm running home to mama because Perdiccas represents my childhood, Mm -hmm. my past, my village. Mm -hmm. And that scene where um, Gabrielle and Zena have that discussion before Gabrielle goes off to marry Perdiccas. As again, I always make the qualification because I always remind myself I'm not that orientation. I'm not that gender. I'm not that. But that scene still sticks in my mind because it broke my heart because she's looking right at the woman who is her destiny. And she's saying, I'm scared of you because of what you're going to reveal about me. And so I'm going to run away to something I should never have been a part of. And I've seen people go through that. And so that scene still sticks in my mind. That's literally, I can, it's in my mind, I see the entire image of that scene. Well, and you, you know, you say, see that, Obviously, you're not a, a gay woman, but you know humans and you know people. And at the end of the day, those characters were were very human. And I hate to say it, love is love. It's very cliche. Absolutely, but it, but it is right. Like, the, of course. Like, why wouldn't you understand where those two characters were in? Because you're a human being who understands the concept of love. <clears throat> but I love that. I love that what you said. It's like, yeah, of course, Gabrielle. Knew, she knew what being married to Perdiccas living in her old village would be like, mm-hmm. like you said, she could, she could endure that she'd been there. Mm-hmm. She understood it. And what, if she stayed with, with Zena, it's scary. It's the unknown. Mm-hmm. 
And it's, you know, it, it is that, that sort of, that great uh, inner conflict in her. And, and yeah, no, yeah. I, I hadn't really thought about it, but that scene mm-hmm. is very heartbreaking and, and it's probably yeah. one of my favorite scenes. When she, when she left the village, that little girl was looking at adventure because she was bored. She had no idea what she was getting into on every level, not just the action level, the adventure level, the danger level, but the emotional level. She had no idea. So then she got to a point where that all scared her. She was more scared of that than she was about the the adventure and the danger. Warlords mm-hmm. did not scare her the way this scared her. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it was a huge, it was a big turning point. Now, whether you ship um, one way or the other way on this, it still works mm-hmm. because she had to find her destiny. And I also make a little distinction in my mind that Gabrielle's destiny was not to be with Zena. Gabrielle's destiny was to be with herself and to love who she chose to love. Mm-hmm. It was to find her happiness and boom, it walks into her life. <laughs> and that is the scariest thing that can happen to a person. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to admit it. So I've often um, described the relationship at the beginning uh, because Zena was much more experienced. Zena was much more focused on what she had won and lost in her life. And she had a lot of repair work to do in her life. Gabrielle had a lot of growing to do. So when Zena and Gabrielle came together, I, I made this distinction. I've said that um, Gabrielle loved Zena because awesome. Mm-hmm. Zena, I mean, I've got the legends, the things I've heard about you. So Gabrielle loved Zena, but Zena was in love with Gabrielle. From the moment they met. (laughs) I just got chills, Steve. Yeah. (laughs) Same. Wow. I like I like just hearing about Mm -hmm. all the everything that goes into scenes. And now I'm I'm totally gonna go rewatch these too. Oh yeah. After hearing them talked about this way, because you know when you're watching the first time, it's like I feel like. I don't hear all the, you know, the way you talk about these scenes. It's, it's like, I'm not even getting, it's registering on a level that I probably don't even realize. Like when you're thinking, mm-hmm. oh, I love the scene. And then she goes off, but I know she doesn't really love Bernicus. I know that, but, but hearing it talked about that way, like what she's going through, what she's choosing to run home, you know, all these that went into the mind of the writers and everything. It's just, I love hearing it explained like this. I, I'm a, um, I'm a reductionist meaning that I, I, when I write and also when I problem solve, I take everything else and I toss it aside and I said, let's get down to the core and first try to figure out what built the problem from the core, but then try to solve the problem starting with the core. And I do that with my characters as well. Um, I've, I've taught some classes. Um, well, I mean, I, I get asked to be a guest lecturer a lot of times. And I tell people at the beginning uh, for writers, I say, I'm not going to teach you how to write format. You can find that in a book. I'm not going to tell you what the font is. And, you know, I said, but I'm going to talk about two things. One is the philosophy of staying in the business, which is a lot different. Mm-hmm. And two, the psychology of writing your characters. Because we tend to caricature our characters to cater it for television. But from my process, um, this is the best way I can explain it. And since I was never actually taught how to write, I never was. I've never taken a class on this. Um, uh, this was just all the stuff that kind of, I realized my process over time. When I develop a character or when I take somebody else's created character and develop it within the series, um, I 
have to go to an incredible amount of research and cognitive feeling about the character. Everything has to make sense to me on a character level, even psychologically. And uh, I remember um, as an example, when I was uh, producing Sheena over here <laughs> and Sheena, Sheena was a very problematic show. Uh, it was definitely not Sheena, And I did keep reminding the executives that it was not Sheena. Um, and I had, you know, my original plan for that was not just a blonde woman running through Africa, you know, in the original 1938, which was incredibly racist, um, that the blonde woman would go and save Africa from Africa. Mm. Based um, on a comic, right? Mm-hmm. Based on a comic, 1938. Um, mm. And mm. she predates Wonder Woman. She had her own comic long before Wonder Woman. Wow. However, it was a product of its time, mm-hmm. and everybody accepted that notion. And when I was approached about doing that particular series, I had the meeting with the president of the studio and the executives. I said, I can't write that. I'm not going to do what that series was, um, what the comic book was. I said, but what I can do is I want to try to develop this character as today. And I said, I'm going to deal with nationalism versus tribalism in Africa, colonialism and its effects. And I said, but more importantly, I want to, uh, and Doug Schwartz, my partner on this, totally in agreement with this. We discussed this quite a bit. Um, I want to develop an African spirituality that we realize is the important factor of our show. And this spirituality is something that the Western world is completely unaware of. And it was very environmental, very ecological. And I said, um, her adopted mother, Kali, who was an African shamanist, realizes that Sheena, because of how she looks, is the vessel to transform our Western society by bringing African spirituality into it. Hmm. Okay, so all of that. And then, of course, (laughs) well, that's the thing. It was a lot. And, of course, the response I got was, okay, well, don't let that get in the way of her boobs. I was going to say, were the the notes that you got back? Can her costume be smaller? Is that um, I feel like it's not all the time, but yes, okay. there were. Nice. There, I've got actually some fairly funny stories about that. Which, <laughs> um, but you see, I, even within that, I'm, I'm kind of the guy's like, okay, I'll, I'll market it because you guys want to market it, and this is how you want to market it. But you've got to allow me to create this. Now, I had a meeting with their marketing people, and um, at Sony, a really good group of people. And so we sat there and they said, so tell us a little bit about Sheena, the woman. And I'm kind of like, okay, the moment I hear that, I know how you're going to try to market this. Um, So I said, okay. I said, all right, so Sheena, and I started talking about her background and how she ended up in this situation and her the, the relationships and so on and so on. And about 40, 45 minutes later, they stopped me and they said, you are the most prepared producer we have ever run into. And I told them, I said, well, I said, this is how I create the characters, because all of that stuff I just told you for the last 45 minutes, it's not going to end up in an episode. There's no way it could. However, so I can write the character, I have to know it. Hmm. And I said, just like you, if you take my best friend, I can tell you so much about my best friend. And what I would be able to tell you is only 10% of his entire life experience. But to get to that 10%, that 90% had to exist. So that's the way I approached the characters. And it was the same thing with Xena and Gabrielle and every character that was in, at least, you know, in the scripts that I wrote. And certainly, I believe, because I said we, we worked together very well, everybody else had the same type of mindset, different process, probably. 
So anytime I would get a, um, uh, a note from executives or anybody else, uh, the question, if it was a character question, I'm sure that they were on the other side of the phone going, oh, here he goes. <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of how Gabrielle and Zena evolved, for me anyway, was a reflection of that. I looked at who they were when I first met them, what we had talked about for their background. I started creating as much of the psychology I, I could. And then I said, what's the natural progression of this if we bring them together? And that's how the characters evolved. Um, and by the way, um, every series takes a different track based on who you are working with, not just the people on the staff, but if we had not had Lucy and Renee, it would have been a different direction. Oh, yeah. Now, mm -hmm. would it have been more popular, less popular? Who knows? That's an alternate reality. We know what it is, though. Mm -hmm. And when, when RJ and I first sat around talking about how to write Xena, we really didn't know what Lucy was capable of. Mm -hmm. So I remember RJ and I talking, well, you know, what, what kind of dialogue can we give her? You know, Because, you know, she was relatively unknown to us. Mm -hmm. And so we said, you know what, let's give her those little Clint Eastwood one-liners, kind of like a pithy comment. Somebody else will say something, and then she says the zinger like that, but it's like, mm, you don't screw with me, that kind of thing, and just see what happens. And so as we started doing that, Lucy, of course, would take it a different level. <laughs> and we would go, challenge accepted. <laughs> we would start upping it. And after a while, we realized, holy crap, this is awesome. So, and the same thing goes with Renee. Absolutely. When did you start seeing, you know, because then, of course, like after you get, you know, you've established the show and the characters and who they are, and then you, you can start playing with it and bring in comedy and do some off the cut, like wacky. Xena has eight thousand twins running around and everything like that. Like, did you see little was it was it in getting to know Lucy and knowing what she'd done in the past that you knew you could. OK, we can play with this. We can have some fun with comedy. We, you know, and she can handle that, too. Or was it like a scene here and there that you'd say she, that was, that was pretty fun. She made that funny. She found the comedy in that. And and we let's throw a whole comedy out there. We think she could, and Renee and everybody could pull it off. Yeah. It was, it was again, uh, another progression. We tested here, we tested there, but also when we met the actual actresses, mm -hmm. uh, we realized that they had a, um, a very interesting um, relationship with each other. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Lucy and Renee come from really two different approaches to acting. And as, as a former actor, I, you know, I recognize this and yet boom, right together. Mm -hmm. And so we saw their sense of humor, um, uh, Lucy's rather wicked sense of humor. And so some of this was, I'm at a certain point, I have to say that it went back and forth. The staff kind of like forgot we had an audience <laughs> and we were like, let's have a little fun. <laughs> and so we would throw little things in that were in jokes for the staff or in jokes for the set. Basically, when I say staff, I'm talking about everybody all the way down to the people moving the sets on the, on the, mm -hmm. you know, on the show. And what happened is some of them became canon and <laughs> the fans, of course, who analyze everything got them. <laughs> and so they started to take off. And then there are, and, you know, I know some of these stories are already on the internet about little things that, we did as jokes inside and then they ended up on the screen. And with me, at least two cases, <laughs> they were unintentional <laughs> and they ended up being like hysterical moments for the fans. However, I didn't realize that <laughs> it had happened. Um, the famous um, fish 
Um, <laughs> ah. Yeah, catching the yes. fish by you know mm-hmm. tickling the uh, the uh, the catfish. <laughs> Uh, that was something I threw in as a joke. I never thought it would make it. <laughs> and it uh, became usually popular. Uh, yes. Oh, God. Uh, so after a while, though, we began to realize that, um, I'm going to say it in a very kind of like um, sappy way, uh, every show when you're working together, if it's a good environment, you have it's a family. You're working like a family. Um Rarely do you start to feel that the audience is a part of your family. And we started to feel that way. So it was like we started out telling a few in-jokes with each other. And then we realized, oh, they got it. Okay. All right. Well, come on. Come on in. We're going we're to tell another joke. See if we get... So it ended up kind of expanding beyond that. And I, I'm not going to say that we didn't go too far because we did. Um, I mean, we dealt with such um, intense storylines that it was like we had two different shows at one point that one week we'd be dealing with infanticide, patricide, emotional distress, and just core elements to the human psychology. And then next week it was like, ah, Joxerus Tarzan, let's try that. That'll be fun. <laughs> and, you know, part of it was because we had to, we had to, you know, diffuse mm-hmm. the, the intensity that we mm-hmm. had, but very few shows have been able to pull off that range. Mm-hmm. So we did. Yeah, they. Yeah, I feel like you did. <laughs> you could look at a top list of people's favorites, and there's a there's a mix of the the funniest of comedies, and then the most like you know gut wrenching dramas that you guys did. So you did both both comedies and dramas and everything between like were people's favorites. You know, it wasn't. Yeah, yeah it wasn't like and 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 exploring these things. Uh, you know, we went for it. So I mean, you know, <laughs> we had the two characters hate each other, try to kill each other because their children had been murdered. How do you get back from that? Let's sing a song. (laughs) (laughs) But in actuality, that was the only way we could because through music, Mm. we could strip away everything on the outside and music can go right to the core of the feeling and the emotion. And then obviously the lyrics can strike right to the core. Um, the bittersweet was never intended to solve problems. It was intended to erase the hatred so they could start over again. Um, yeah. And, and that's one of the psychologically, that's actually one of the episodes I'm kind of proud of because of uh, the way it was structured, their rebuilding process through the music. Mm-hmm. So nobody could sit there and say, even in the Xena world, that's ridiculous. And you're kind of like, yeah, it's illusion. We can, we're allowed to be ridiculous. They can, <laughs> and we even had the characters acknowledge this is ridiculous. People are seeing <laughs> Well, I'll have you know, Steve, the the night that that aired, bittersweet, I had it was like at ten o'clock on a Sunday night where I was, and I had a job where I had to be at work by like four four thirty. I stayed up and I watched it. I watched again, and then I watched it, and I think I tape recorded the songs so I could play it as I drove to work. I don't even think I slept, maybe an hour. I was so hyped up for that episode. Like, how are they gonna fix this? What's happening? They hate each other, and then yeah. I got no sleep that night because of bittersweet <laughs> FYI and my, my yeah, so thanks DIY soundtrack that I made so I could listen on the way to work. Yeah. But you notice a continuing theme, excuse the pun in the series. Um, when you get into the peace war song, what that song was about was that both of these women had lost everything at that point, including each other. And so both of them in their illusion in Solon's creation of their illusion both of them ran home to mama. Mm. 
Gabrielle ran back to the village in her song because it was boring as hell, but okay, it was familiar. Mm -hmm. Zena ran back to being a warlord, which she hated, but it was familiar. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the worst things in your life, you return to them because they're familiar, not because they're good, they're good for you, because the unknown is so much scarier. And so we, when Chris and I were charting out this um, story, we charted several psychological steps. And that was one of them. We wanted them to run back home and then realize home was not home. So anyway, I, believe me, I, the psychology on these on story, events, especially <laughs> something like that, we could, uh, yeah, we could get to that point of I'm like, oh, here it goes. So many life lessons. I know. Today. Do you do <laughs> therapy <laughs> sessions? Can yeah. we sign up? <laughs> <laughs> like, just to talk about life. <laughs> Well, for, let's if yeah, let's talk about some more specific episodes. So, for very sure. selfish reasons, uh, Wendy and I, there's two episodes that we would like to talk about. And uh, selfishly, for me, it's the quest uh, mm -hmm. because it's it was the first episode of Zena I had ever watched. Steve. Oh wow! I think okay. I feel like I've told you this at some point. Mm -hmm. um, I think I actually did mention that to me, and I, I remember thinking to myself, "Wow, that was a heck of a walk-in." Well, <laughs> it it is, and it it got my attention. Um, but I can honestly say because of this, because of your script and your show, uh, my life was changed forever. So thanks for that. Um, but let's talk about the quest. Like, what do you remember from it? Uh, you know, were you, were you concerned that, that the almost kissed wouldn't get past the studio? Like what, let's, let's kind of get into your, what you remember from that show. Uh, well, obviously the events around, writing that episode, Lucy um, having the accident and breaking her hip. Um, and it's funny, even today, when people mention the title of episodes, I literally have to go through a Rolodex of titles because we have all sorts of titles until we actually produce it. Uh, and on air, I will not tell you what the original title was for Hoods and Harlots. <laughs> so oh, no. I can't tell you that on air. <laughs> and it was literally just a bunch of us were being goofy and I, we were running through titles and I threw off one and everybody just like did one of those... <laughs> Like that type of thing. And I'm like, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Um, but anyway, having left you with that little bit of a mystery. Um, <clears throat> all of us, um, when we got to the quest, a lot of that was emergency writing. Because we had to change what we had actually wanted to do for the next few episodes because Lucy was recovering. And um, so, you know, the body switch, uh, which was... Um, in Intimate Stranger, was it Intimate Stranger? That they did the body switch with Callisto. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, believe me, it's, it, I always turn to the fans and I say this. If I get them out of order or if I'm mistaking the titles, you remind me because you know more about this <laughs> than I do. Um, we were only going to do that for one episode, uh, but then we continued it because Lucy was in recovery. Bruce had immediately stepped up and said that, you know, he would help us out. Um, he would help with his schedule here. Mm -hmm when we were trying to come up with what this story was going to be, we, we didn't want to just say, Oh, you know, Zena is off helping another village and Gabrielle's going to do this. Uh, we wanted to make, you know, and we'd done that. We did that with Academy of Performing of Bards because we wanted to focus yeah. on Gabrielle, but this was too important of a time. Mm -hmm. So we decided to continue the idea of uh, her death in the one where she was injured. And then we brought her back but then we killed her and remembering the progression <laughs> and the episode um, was designed so that if we were to use Lucy in it, we could shoot her literally in the hospital room. So some, and, and literally I'm trying to put all the connected tissue together because it was an emergency thing. 
Um, so I think it was Liz that might have been the one who came up with the idea of um, Zena taking control of Autolycus and basically mm-hmm. trying to communicate to let Renee or let Renee let uh, Gabrielle mm-hmm. know that she was there spiritually and had not moved on. Mm-hmm. That there was a possibility here and ambrosia and everything like that. So once we did that, we realized that this was going to be, a, first of all, an emotionally intense episode, but also a comedic episode. Mm-hmm. Even if you played it completely, 100% legit and straight, it was going to be funny. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, it's like, oh, Bruce Campbell, try not to make it funny. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and Bruce did such a great job uh, with that character, um, and especially in that episode. Mm-hmm. So the interesting thing about the kiss is um, <clears throat> when we were all working on it, originally, because this was an emergency thing, all of us were going to write the script together, literally everybody in the room. Um, as, of course, we had to do more episodes after this, not everybody could work on the final product. So basically, if you look at the credits, I think everybody's got like a story credit, and then there I am. So, Because I was the one that at that moment, my slot was open, so I could take on the actual uh, working with the, um, uh, with the script. But everybody contributed to the script. <clears throat> so that scene, believe it or not, started off with RJ wanting to get to the joke, your hand is on my butt. <laughs> Amazing. I love it. That's where a lot of this stuff happens. It's kind of like, wouldn't it be funny if you did this? And then you realize, okay, how do we make it believable? How do you make it substantial? How do you make it mean something? And then, okay, this evolved around it. And I remember, you know, after the, the episode came out and everybody was commenting on that episode and RJ turned me and says, I just wanted to get his hand on her butt. <laughs> but it works so well. Now, I don't remember us having any problem um, with anybody on this, with executives or anybody like that. Rob may have a different story. I have no idea. Uh, I do know that, you know, and then it, we're out of it. Okay. And in my mind, I was still kind of like, yeah, we still went there. (laughs) It's nobody's going to look at this and say, oh no, she just couldn't see correctly in the spirit world. So she was leaning forward to hear or something. No, no, it was pretty obvious. The heads were turning. It was going (laughs) So. Um, I had a part of me that said, but did we succeed or did it pander? That's always Mm. been a concern of mine. Mm. I don't like the pandering thing. Mm. Um, and there's a lot of that dealing with not just the, um, LGBTQ plus, um, audience that people pander to that. Um, it's done with almost every culture, anything you can market. There's always a pandering element and I'm always kind of aware of that. And I don't want to go there. So I was real concerned about that because it made perfect sense in the context. It was like, but was the editing mm. appropriate? Pulling out like that, mm-hmm. does it actually work in the flow or is somebody going to sit there and say, wait a minute, okay, you brought us that close and then you denied us, you're pandering to us. Okay. Mm. So I had heard um, that apparently when they aired this at the Meow Mix in New York, um, <laughs> Somebody reported to me that they were all like watching this <laughs> and then it happened and then it you know snapped back and you got the joke, your hand is on my butt. And there was like a pause. Nobody in the, in the apparently nobody was reacting. And then somebody in the back goes, rewind it. <laughs> I was like, okay, good. All right. We're fine. We're moving on with that. Well, and sure. You know, that the idea of queer baiting is definitely a discussion, mm-hmm. especially nowadays, because yeah. of the pandering and, you know, uh, because of the, the idea of representation and 
back then and being a fan watching the show at that time, um, there was nothing else like that on TV. And so I never felt pandered to. I felt seen, if anything. Mm-hmm. I felt like mm-hmm. that Good. was the mm-hmm. representation at the time. It was all the, it's all that we had. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, it, you know, that that's a shame. Um, mm-hmm. Because I have um, had a lot of friends who did not survive the late 80s and the 90s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were never seen for who they were. Um, when I hear you say that, uh, I'm, I'm absolutely like, I, thank you very much. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but it also reminds me of what we went to to get there. And I'm sorry. There's, I'm, Don't uh, apologize. <clears throat> there's Please. a couple of people I'm, I'm you know, just immediately popping into my head. Sure. And, um, <clears throat> and the struggles they went through. And when they, um, when they passed on, people blamed them for dying. Not in a, oh, you denied us, you left us, but in like, ah, you deserved it. And I just, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. because they were not seen for who they were. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when I hear those stories, uh, I mean, thank you. Thank you very much for that. Uh, yeah. So anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I agree with Kat. Back then, that was, there just wasn't. I mean, Zeno was one of the stepping stones in getting to where, you know. We are now, I guess, with with now. I feel like if you if you tried something like that, that kind of scene now where it, people are, you know, it's it's not something that you have to avoid on TV. In fact, I feel like it's, oh, yeah. it's on more than ever and it never went anywhere. It never led to something people might be, you know, feel pandered to. But back yeah. then, yeah, that was like, hey, they were doing what they could and getting away mm-hmm. with things. And I agree with yeah. Kat. Like I didn't. I mean, I didn't know what I was thinking about myself or any of this at the time, but I remember seeing that scene and liking it a lot. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I feel like I was seeing something that I hadn't really seen before. Mm-hmm. And I think that was the case for a lot of people, at least of our generation. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it, before then, um, the series L.A. Law, uh, which also broke boundaries, mm-hmm. but there was an episode where um, two women kissed. And it was marketed. Long before the episode even went on the air, uh-huh. it was leaked that these two women, of course, attractive women, were going to kiss. This was back in the early 90s. And it worked. Mm-hmm. Ratings went mm-hmm. right up. Not necessarily mm-hmm. because lesbians embraced it, but because horny white men like me. <laughs> I don't think it had anything to do with color, actually. I should just say horny straight men like me. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, yeah, and I tuned in. I, absolutely. I'm like, ooh, they're going to kiss. And then mm-hmm. I... Like the funny thing was, is that when they actually kissed, I was like, okay, I've never seen him do that. <laughs> again, you know, it's like theater. <clears throat> so um, it's kind of like, okay, you know, Pornhub is off in the future and this is the software and that's what you would, but that was a the thing. They were actually putting that out there so that they could draw the attention and right. it, it worked. And I can't get into the minds of, of the people who created that episode. Maybe they were saying we can break some ground here and that would be absolutely great. Mm-hmm. But what the marketing did with it was it took it into the, you know, it wasn't even queer baiting. It was straight baiting. Right. Right. So um, when we got to doing Xena, <clears throat> one of the things I'm also proud about the series is when people will tell me about um, how gay the characters were or, you know, <laughs> how queer they were or whatever word they want to use. And I will say, that's funny. We, 
We never talked about that. <laughs> I'm trying to remember where we, did we say that? We never said that. And they go, well, it's obvious. And I'm like, mm-hmm. it's obvious you're in a heterosexual relationship too. Why would that be important to me? <laughs> we just played it. And I, and I tell mm-hmm. people the reason it works so well on Xena is because we never labeled it. Mm-hmm. We didn't have to. In Xena's world, in our alternate history, they didn't have labels for that because it was just like, do you have a label for being straight that you just bring up all the time? Do you have to talk about it all the time? No, of course mm-hmm. not because it's normal. It's accepted. And as I pointed out to somebody uh, once um, I said, we had a woman give birth to a centaur and nobody blinked. How'd <laughs> <laughs> like, that happen? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she definitely <laughs> so, but part of our normalizing it was that we ignored it. We just didn't, you know, it wasn't like we said, looky here, this is it. Oh my gosh. And, you know, we didn't right. do that. We played the characters. It goes back mm-hmm. to that again. We played and the, the chemistry and not really, you know. Yeah. yeah. And even any obstacles we might've gotten in that direction. Um, as I said, with the Perdicus situation, we said, all right, we can embrace this because the obstacles you're throwing at us, and we didn't get a lot, but the obstacles you're throwing at us, that's nothing compared to the obstacles that the real people are getting every day of their lives. Mm-hmm. So we're going to embrace that and we're going to play it and we're going to show people. So we did. Well, Wendy, do you want to talk about your first episode? I mean, I don't have a lot to say. I was just but at the same uh, note as cats with the quest. Destiny was the one that, you know, I, I had seen maybe parts of a couple episodes before, but destiny was the one that after I watched that, it was this feeling of, okay, not only after just seeing this show is I think now this is going to be my favorite show. <laughs> and I was, it, it was that feeling of not just, mm-hmm. oh, I found a show that I love, but something is different, you know? And, and mm-hmm. next thing you know, I'm going off to, uh, to conventions. I mean, I never like, <laughs> well, actually I said, cause they had a Dallas Zena convention. I'm like, oh, I'm not going to get that into it. And of course, next thing you know, like a few <laughs> months later, I'm flying to Santa Monica with people I don't know. I don't think I'd ever really traveled alone like that before. But I was like, I have to go. I have to go <laughs> with these people. And um, but yeah, I remember after Destiny, it was that feeling of there's been a shift in my world and I don't know what to do with it. But next thing you know, I mean, and now mo- pretty much all my friends are because of Xena or or cats, you know, cat rescue. But um, yeah, it's <laughs> my life went in a whole different direction in that moment. So Thank you for destiny. That was, uh, that's kind of the one. It's interesting. Every time it's like, because I look over here, every time you're mentioning a title, I'm bringing it up on the screen so I can make sure that I've got, because I said, sometimes the titles would move around on Mm -hmm. other ones. So yeah, I'm thinking, okay, that's gotta be the one I'm thinking of, which of course it is. And also the, the the Julius Caesar addition Mm -hmm. to it was, uh, with Carl doing that Mm -hmm. role, uh, was hysterical. And that, and Caesar being introduced to it was, um, a Rob thing. Um, Rob, <laughs> we had always tried to keep with RJ and I, cause RJ and I are both historians. And so we were trying to, you know, eventually we just gave up and said, this is a history that is alternate. So we'll just go with that. But we always said, okay, anything BC is fine. And we'll stick with that. And then Rob says, um, I want her to meet Caesar. And we're like, okay. <laughs> What about Alexander? He goes, nah, Caesar. Now, you know, Alexander's a great story too. I like Caesar. Okay, fine. <clears throat> um, I can't say that all of our our discussions had any real basis in logic <laughs> between all of us. And I like 
it, we laughed about it because it's like that one, you know, Rob was kind of like, I want to meet Caesar. I'm focused on that. So let's make it happen. And so um, uh, we all kind of like worked on how this would be um, uh, be created and how, what the event would be. And, and Rob was the one who um, talked about the, uh, the pirate story that was true in Caesar's lifetime and said, basically, wouldn't it be cool if that was Xena, which we were like, that'd be awesome. And I'm one of these people that when I write a story, if I can actually make it historically accurate, I will do it. Mm-hmm. And I'm known for that with my research. And so that story had historical accuracy to the background. Uh, the other one where um, uh, God, Brutus, what was it, when in Rome? Was that it? Where Gabrielle had to make the choice of, um, of speaking out and Caesar thought he was going to be killing Verkanix, um, executing him. See, I can't even remember the, the uh, I think it's when in Rome. That's I think right. it's when in Rome, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, that actually, everything historically in that, with the exception of like a five-year uh, gap, is historically accurate if you assume the writers never mentioned Xena. But everything that actually happened in that was kind of historically accurate mm-hmm. with the capturing of the Gaul king and parading him into Rome and then publicly executing him. All of that was kind of true. Uh, so anyway, um, <clears throat> so dealing with the Caesar thing, when we finally decided to do Caesar, we just kind of shrugged and said, okay, well, we're expanding our universe here, but we have to take a look at what would it be like if you had the ultimate narcissism and arrogance of a Caesar running into this woman who in the past he had had this very interesting fiery relationship where it was a little bit of BDSM, captive (laughs) abuse, release, hatred, love, love and hatred spouting from the same tree, all of this stuff. And then he meets her again. And now she is um, something completely different. Her, you know, the way that she, uh, she deals with him is completely different, which is what happened Mm -hmm. in when in Rome, but we had to set that up. So we found this great little framework of setting it up through um, her trying to remember her past and how significant those events were to what's happening. And I'm I'm expressing it badly, but um, when we did a lot of these things that reflected on her past, we wanted to lay in, um, we wanted to explain some of the threads that we had justified. Okay. So this gets, I'll try to do this very briefly. Um, One of the things about writing, when you're writing in the current tense, you don't want to do exposition. Exposition is when two characters talk about things they already know about from their past, but we have to do it for the audience. Mm -hmm. You know, it's when two characters are like, hey, remember that time you were in the boat? And the other character says, oh, yeah, I remember you picked up that fishing pole, but you didn't know it didn't have a line on it. Oh, yeah. And I remember you looked at the line and said, oh, that's it. It's like, why are you talking about this? All it is is remember that time in the boat with the fishing rod? Oh, yeah, that's it. But we have to explain it to the audience. I hate exposition. So what I tell writers and what I try to do myself is I say, sometimes you don't have to explain what happened in their past, but you have to make sure that it's consistent with everything they're doing now. So when we started writing her stories from the past, like the Caesar story, what we thought was, let's lay in some threads that our fandom certainly will recognize as evolving into what Xena is today. So it's almost a little bit of like you'd be watching it and she would do or say something and you go, oh, now that makes perfect sense. Now I understand why. 
So when we first started doing that, and this episode, Destiny, being one of the first times we did that, um, it took a lot of discussion because we wanted to make sure it was laid out correctly. Uh, we also knew that we were going to be bringing Caesar back. So it's like, mm -hmm. now we're not just writing a progression from the time the audience sees Caesar and the next time we see Caesar, we're actually writing a progression from 10 years ago through where we are now, and then we're going to take it forward into the future. So, God, it's hard to explain these concepts <laughs> Somebody should write a book. Oh, for sure. Uh, well, oh, go ahead, Tara. My first episode I, I saw, it. Um, I don't think it was one of the ones you, you wrote, Steve, but it was, is there a doctor in the house? And I yeah. was a little bit younger, um, <laughs> but I was just thinking how impactful seeing the scene where, you know, where she's beating on Gabrielle's chest telling her wake up and uh, how I also thought, whoa, I can relate to this level of love that she, this woman is feeling. Mm -hmm. uh, and just thinking of the representation mm -hmm. and um, at the same time, well, I should say later on when Netflix kind of first started up and uh, I did like a rewatch of Xena in 2005, um, right before I came to the convention for the first time. And so I was getting the DVDs on Netflix and I was just all in. And at the same time, another show had just started, or maybe it was in like a second season, the L word. That was definitely not subtext. You <laughs> had it in your face, right? Representation, you know, uh, you know, at the time, like nothing else um, that you would think, yeah, we have definitely the physical part of it for sure. You know, or definitely, um, but so I, I was watching that on one hand um, and then also binging on my DVDs that would come in the mail of the Xena episodes and just thinking exactly to your point that you, the show never said overtly, these are lesbians. They are in love with each other and they're going to be making out doing, you know, completely. They didn't have to sexualize it really at all. Um, and then on the other hand, you have the L word doing all of that, um, you know, and it's good. It's in its own right. I mean, I, you know, very much appreciate the show, enjoyed the show at the time, getting that side of it, but at the same time feeling even more enthralled mm. watching my Xena mm. DVDs <laughs> um, because I appreciated so much their chemistry and their connection on such a different level than what was happening on the L word right. um, because they, you didn't need any of that um, to still show the relationship and um, the love between two people that was even more powerful than any of those characters that you saw overtly you know, naked half the time. And, you know, um, it felt so much, you know, it felt forced really in comparison mm -hmm. to what Zine and Gabrielle had that was so natural. Um, mm -hmm. And you, you could just see it in the way that they looked at each other. And it is, it just, like you said, you have people coming up and saying, wow, those characters are just, they're just so gay, so queer. And you, and you think, well, we didn't do that on, no. <laughs> we tried to try to make it obvious, but watching <laughs> it, like to me, that was better representation mm -hmm. of day to day, you know, life, which yeah. seems more ridiculous because it's a fantasy show set, you know, than the L word, which is set in Los Angeles in the present day at that time. So, yeah. um, yeah, I just remember side by side watching those and being like, I get, I get why this is popular <laughs> right now, but yes. I'm really in, relating more to Xena. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so, not that there's not a place for that, but yes. Right. Right. Um, well, let me, let me, um, let me throw a few things in about that and, and, kind of in the context of what you just mentioned. Um, I didn't have to go down to New Zealand a lot. I only went down really one time because Rob was down there most of the time. 
And since he was overseeing things, you know, I'm back up here in the writer's room. But I did go down there. Um, they were finishing up shooting The Greater Good, and we started shooting Doctor in the House. Well, actually, I got that reverse. Uh, Doctor in the House, then we were shooting Greater Good. So I was on the set when we shot that scene you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And uh, P.J. Manning, who wrote the script, was also on the set. And so uh, I believe yeah, T.J. was directing it, uh, T.J. Scott. And so somewhere I have a really, really bad fuzzy photo on the set. And you can see Danielle standing Aww. there and all the people standing Aww. around. Unfortunately, all those photos are really fuzzy. Uh, as a sidebar. Is that bar, on one of your discs, Steve? Can you find that one? Uh, I actually <laughs> on have, I, same thing with photos. <laughs> I have terabytes and terabytes of oh, every God. photo I've ever taken. Oh, man. Um, I've got some, I've got a really um, adorable one of Renee. Uh, the first time I showed her the AOL chat room. Oh, no. It's very so funny. Cool. And, I, and she and I talked about it. It Literally, I told her this was going on. And she said, really? Really? We were having a party at the Renaissance. Um, I think it was a holiday party, probably Christmas. And so we went into one of the offices. And I'm standing there. Well, first of all, you know, the first photo I have is I'm down there. And I'm unlining us. And then Renee is sitting there. And I'm standing behind her. And Adam Armis and uh, Nora K. Foster are also standing there. And she's, she's like looking at the screen like this. She's like... <laughs> <laughs> she was like, oh my gosh, cool. they're talking about us. <laughs> um, uh, I love her to death. I really love Renee. Um, oh, she's amazing. She her. is absolutely and a, a, a fantastic on every level mm-hmm. as a person and everything. Well, she's from Texas. That's why. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> um, <clears throat> which, uh, anyway. Uh, <laughs> well, we're not happy with okay, Texas right now. Right. Go there. Let's yeah. just keep moving. Yeah, don't yeah. go she she hasn't folks, lived there in a while. Don't go there. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> my my state's not doing so good right now. They're having some issues. That's true. I guess that's not that's really a badge of honor right now. Yeah. So. Oh, she's <laughs> from Texas. Of course she's there. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but anyway, so I was on the set when we shot that. And, you know, it's it's the usual, okay, quiet, 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 quiet. Places, everybody. Da, 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 da. Business, business, business. Then it's action. Mm-hmm. And then Lucy goes through that scene. And when she's done, there's a moment of silence and you hear somebody yell, cut. And then there is dead silence. And I look around and people are just in shock. And then suddenly the spontaneous applause just breaks out among the entire crew. And they see this every day. They see production every day. Mm -hmm. And this applause broke out. And I looked over at Pat, over at PJ Manny, who wrote it. And she is just tears Mm -hmm. playing out. It was such an intense scene uh, in the room. And I forgot who I was standing next to. And I said, God, I hope that translates to film. Mm-hmm. And, and it did. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was so incredibly intense. But, you know, to your, your larger point, um, normalizing their relationship. And even saying that, I get pissed off that I have to say, we have to normalize. It was normal. Okay. (laughs) Freaking jerks. It was normal. Um, But the fact that that's how we played it, because that's how we felt Mm -hmm. normal. Um, I'll give you a little uh, story about my show um, over here. Whoops. Where'd they go? Riptide. They're right there. (laughs) My guys. Okay. So we got fanzines. All right. Now there was an episode that my partner, Bert Pearl, he and I wrote together. Um, all of the episodes back then we wrote together, we were, we were a team and we'd written this episode where the, the funny running gag in the detective show 
was that they had the two hunky guys had not gotten their laundry back. Something had happened. So they had to dig into their old clothes. <laughs> so one of the hunky guys was just wearing clothes that hadn't been washed. They were all wrinkled. <laughs> and the other one was wearing clothes from the 60s, literally had, you know, little appliques all over it. And, just <laughs> and so they needed to get some information. So they run into this guy who works at the newspaper. And of course, he's the fashion person because there's the humor. They're wearing these and he's a fashion guy. And so he's impeccably dressed. And so he, he's talking to them and they're asking questions and he's going like, where did you get that look? Where did you get that look? That's the wrinkled look. It's very popular right now. Where did you get that? <laughs> and, you know, Nick goes, the laundry happened. And he goes, is that on Melrose? <laughs> so, you know, so he played those jokes. All right. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so when one of the, the subsequent fanzines came out, there was always a letters section. And this one letter section took Bert and I to task for stereotyping gays. And went on about this, about how we had stereotyped gays and how bad it was, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. <clears throat> and so I wrote a response to it. One of the few times I'd done it at that time. <clears throat> and my response was, Bert and I went through the script several times and we found absolutely no reference to where this character outed himself or whether he needed to be outed. There was no discussion of him being gay. And I don't think we were the ones that was were guilty necessarily of stereotyping it. Mm-hmm. However, for future reference, Everybody should just assume that every character I write is gay, unless it's important to the plot. <laughs> Good answer. Yep. That's the whole thing. It's yeah. like some of the gayest people I know have really done their share of women because they're not. Mm-hmm. And um, some of the straightest people I know were gay. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, right. my, my writing partner, Bert, was gay. He never hit it. He just never had felt like he should talk about it. Mm-hmm. And the funny thing is, is Bert was this good looking surfer guy. That's what he looked like. So when it came out that one of us was gay, they thought it was me. <laughs> and it was, we thought it was hysterical. We always, he and I made jokes about that, that, you know, it's kind of like we go into a room and, and he would get ignored. And you know, we went to a, a bar in um, Vegas one time. Uh, God, what was it called? Was it the gay rage? Might've been the gypsy. Um, so anyway, we go there and guess who gets hit on <laughs> me I'm the little breeder sitting there and all these guys are coming up and talking to me and he's sitting there like, <laughs> you see, to me, that's, that is, that's the fun thing about who we are as individuals. So normalizing it is something that was just a part of Xena because we didn't exceptionalize it. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And it was very comforting to watch in that way. So. How many times do you remember, Steve, how many ta- how many takes of that scene Lucy had to do? I only remember the one. Hmm. Really? Yeah. I just remember that one. It was Whoa. so exceptional. Mm-hmm. Uh, anything after that, I believe, were just pickup shots, you know, people who were watching and, and little tiny isolated shots. But I mean, it's quite possible that after that one, I may have just walked off the set and go, OK, <laughs> yeah, I need a breather group. <laughs> Well, I remember um, uh, hearing about that episode and, you know, I could, I came into it, I guess, season three, late season two or mid, like when they were re- showing the reruns. And, um, but I'd heard about that episode and I got my season one VHS tapes that I ordered and I just wanted to watch that episode because I'd heard so mm-hmm. much about it, but I made myself watch all the way through season one and just like saving it for last. Cause it was the finale that year, I think. And, uh, 
thinking, is this going to disappoint? Like, I've heard, is this too built up as how good this episode is going to be? And it was not. And it surpassed it. And after I watched that, I was like, yeah, that was everything I'd heard and more. Mm-hmm. And it was amazing. So mm-hmm. good. lived up to the hype. Good. You know, I, it, it really pleases me that that we managed to um, touch people that that we I always look at writing characters and the presentation is whether I harmonized with the audience. Because, you know, if I want to show you action adventure. That's the easy part. You know, we all respond to action adventure. We always respond to blatant sex. Those are primal things. We are programmed to respond to those. But the emotional harmony is the harder thing. So when I hear like your stories, um, that just it pleases me just mm-hmm. so much to know that we were able to do that. Mm-hmm. Especially from such a mixed group of people who worked on the show. We all had different opinions. We were all different orientations. Um, and yet, you know, it, 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 well, it, we were all different orientations, different people, but we weren't in conflict about it. I think that's the main thing. Hmm. Nobody was in conflict about it. We appreciated who each other were. Now, not to say we didn't have our problems. <laughs> we had some lovely disagreements. <laughs> I don't focus on those, but yeah, you know, we, we would every now and then have a, a real boom, boom, boom. All shows do that. Mm-hmm. But most of the stories ended up just being very, um, very funny when we would have those, those little conflicts. Yeah, because I mentioned a, like the Caesar thing and stuff like that. Was mm-hmm. there like a certain story point or direction that you remember causing the biggest? And I don't want to get into like if it was like really nasty fighting, but like the biggest source of like there were there was a side that was adamant or against doing something with a character or story and not doing it because I feel like the show went on some interesting risky paths you know moving them up into the future 25 years which i get mm-hmm. you know why why y'all did that or you know the killing of the kids and the, i mean there were just so many things that happened you know how how y'all dealt with lucy's pregnancy how you know mm-hmm. was there anything that you remember being like the biggest source of like this is going to be horrible if we do this or it's going to be horrible if we don't or um Hopefully, in what I refer to as snippet media, nobody will clip out what you just said about and killing the kids. I understand that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Did I say that? Well, I didn't mean to say it like that. Paraphrasing slightly. That's true. Yeah, that someone could have that slightly really bad. <laughs> but, you, but you know what? That obviously that was a huge discussion. Yeah. What we were going to do. I remember when you know Rob um, wanted to do Orphan of War. Um, cause I had had this story that I always wanted to do someday. Mm-hmm. And he came in and he basically said, I want to do a story about finding out that Xena had a, has a child. And this other story in my head, um, which I had read about, it was an actual news article. Um, interestingly enough, it actually was made into a movie later on, um, which was about a woman who was, uh, I think she was a drug addict and, she had a lot of problems. She, you know, lived on the streets or whatever, and she got pregnant and she didn't want her child to live her life. So she put her child up for adoption. And then later on, she got her life together and she was doing well. And so then she wanted her child back and the child had already grown to like four or five years old. And I remember reading that story and I said, there's no bad person and there's no winning in this. This is, you're going to either rob this child of their childhood or how do you resolve that? And so when he said that, I was like, oh, crap, I know the story. Mm-hmm. I know what I want to do with the story. Um, so we took things that were 
touchy subjects, um, ones that were difficult to do, and we challenged them. We, we did them deliberately because they were difficult to do. Uh, the scene that I really, there are several scenes in Orphan of War, which I, I really enjoyed writing and even more so seeing how it actually ended up. Um, but there's that one scene <clears throat> where Gabrielle, you know, because Gabrielle thought she should tell, Zena should tell Solon who she was. Mm -hmm. And Zena was like, no, <clears throat> I'm not going to do that. Because Zena was like, I'm protecting Solon's childhood. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so, but there's this, I wanted to make sure that both characters had a totally legitimate reason for saying what they said, totally believable. Cause I wanted the audience to sit back and say, Oh my gosh, I don't know where I'd go. Cause they're both right. And it was that, there was that moment where um, Zena says to Gabrielle, um, I'm paraphrasing my own words um, that she doesn't understand because she's never been a mother. And Gabrielle fires right back at her and mm -hmm. says, yes, but I am, I am a daughter. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you realize, Oh, yeah, she kind of yeah. like hit it right on the head there. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> and when you when you watch that scene, especially the fire that they had between them, and mm -hmm. um, I really love the fact that when Gabrielle came back with that, if you, if you watch it again, you'll see that Zena didn't have a comeback. Mm -hmm. And it was one of the few times that she couldn't have a comeback. And, and mm -hmm. Lucy played it so well. Um, and that took a, you know, a lot of thinking about how I wanted to approach that and then getting to the end of it with that scene where she decides not to tell Solon. And I will say the thing that really, really sold that scene. I want to say it was because of my wonderful dialogue. Um, and I will say it absolutely contributed to it because there was a certain way to it, but it was, it was after she had the scene and she didn't tell him. And when she turned and walked away, there were two things that happened. One, um, the editorial choice, the director's choice, and um, probably Rob's choice to slow down Zena as she's turning away. But that look mm -hmm. on Lucy's mm -hmm. face of what she had just done, of what Zena had just done. Mm -hmm. Now, that one was not an episode that had a lot of contentious things in it. So there wasn't, it wasn't something in that that we had a, you know, like a, uh, any kind of arm wrestling over. But there were a lot of things we had to discuss. Now, Solon, however, later on came into play in an area where we did have some arm wrestling. And um, to give you the background on Solon, I based Solon on a historical character. I based it on the character Solon, S-O-L-O-N. Now in the script, it's spelled S-O-L-A-N. I only did that so people would say the name correctly. So it wouldn't be a bunch of people saying Solon, Solon. So, so I've done that, do that frequently, actually. I, I adapt the, uh, the name so that it can be read correctly. But in um, Greek history, Solon was a warrior who became also a philosopher and a politician and a statesman and a wise man. And I thought Solon's background would match his mother's. So if his mother was Xena, this would make perfect sense that he would become this revered, wise person in Greek history. Mm -hmm. Now, the way we played out Solon in the subsequent episodes, it did not lend itself to that backstory because uh, we often. <laughs> um, <laughs> but the arm wrestling was actually over the um, uh, bittersweet. That's where we, because that one was, that's one of those things that you say, it's an episode I love having done. <laughs> it was yeah. one of the most difficult things to do 
at that mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. Both Chris and I uh, come out of theater and also musical theater. So a lot of what we heard in our head, we had to try to translate to everybody else in the room. And uh, especially the war piece uh, song, because that is such a theatrical piece. And it had to go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and back. And then it comes together at climax. And that's a hard one to describe to everybody in the room. So we, we did have some people who are kind of like, I'm not so sure I get that just yet. yet. And, uh, you know, Joe LaDuca was like, well, I get it. <laughs> so <laughs> he goes off and writes this beautiful score. And then our lyricists write these. And I, I, I apologize to our lyricists because I can't remember the names, but um, they wrote, you know, beautiful lyrics to it. Um, what Chris and I had written in the script, every time there was a song, we wrote a black, a block paragraph in capital letters hmm. with suggestions for lyrics, but basically the overall tone and what the point of the song was. And then the lyricist would go off and write. Uh, we'd go back and forth with editing. But um, uh, the thing that we we had a problem with was the reason that Illusion was going on. In other words, who was the big boss they fight at the end? Mm-hmm. And Rob wanted it to be Ming Tian. And Chris and I, mm-hmm. we disagreed. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the thing about, you know, Rob, you can disagree with Rob. Uh, I, <laughs> Rob doesn't like it. <laughs> but I've always said this about Rob. Uh, Rob gives everybody a fair voice. And if you can convince him, he'll, he'll go the way he thinks is best for the show. He will, he will go with you. Um, and on this particular one, he was hung up on the idea that Zena had told a lie to Gabrielle, and that was the ultimate betrayal. And, you know, Chris and I were kind of like, all right, they've killed each other's kids. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot going on here than just a lie. But that was something that was really, really entrenched um, with mm-hmm. Rob. So we went back and forth over that uh, quite a bit, not angrily, not, you know, like we're mad at each other. But um, so when it was obvious that it was going to be Ming Tian, we had to find a way to um, resolve it in such a way that that was a satisfying uh, resolution for the big boss on this. So that would answer the question of like, what was the ultimate nightmare that they were both dealing with? And, you know, in Rob's mind, speaking in Rob's defense, it was the breakdown of the trust they had between each other represented Mm -hmm. that. Um, so the lyricist and Joe came up with this beautiful song. Yes, I lied. You know, I remember the first line of it because that's the confession. Um, but then that also opened the question of like, well, then why is Illusia there in the first place? Mm-hmm. And as Chris and I worked this out and started discussing it, it came down to Illusia was this completely fantasy world that was created so that they could find themselves that they could erase all the hatred and at least have a chance to start over. And who would do that? And it's like Solon, because once Mm -hmm. Solon had entered the afterlife, Solon had all the wisdom, all the knowledge. Mm -hmm. And this was also a wonderful way to tie back to that look that Xena had when she left Orphan of War, that in her mind, she had made the decision and she would never be able to tell her son, I love you. Mm -hmm. And so this was Solon saying, I love you. And in another way, I've also said the interesting thing when you think about this, uh, and I mentioned this at the Zenite retreat, and I, when I said it, everybody reacted to this, and I realized, oh my gosh, I've never told anybody this. So this will be like the second time I've told this. In Orphan of War, there is a pivotal moment where Zena is talking to Solon, and he's talking about who he thinks his mother is. 
and how she did these wonderful things and how, you know, she would sing to him and she would tell him, you know, sing these beautiful stories. And then when he leaves, Zena's left alone and she voices, she goes, I could sing to you. Well, what was Elusia? Elusia was all singing. So you won the well, argument in that time. Because <laughs> <laughs> if you didn't convince him with all that, then, you know, which obviously you did. So I'm glad you, <laughs> glad you did. Way better than Ming Tian. Sorry. Uh, but the Ming was there. <laughs> Steve, we could we could do this for hours and to say that you know to say that we're fans of yours is an understatement you're an absolute treasure to this fandom <laughs> and you know hearing your stories and hearing you talk about the characters the way you do it's you know to we often talk about how you know these two actors being playing these two roles was lightning in a bottle it was it was perfect it also sounds like everyone behind the scenes including you <laughs> and Rob and Liz and your in all of your hands is also lightning in a bottle. Like you guys, all the components coming together created mm-hmm. this incredible show that we all love and mm-hmm. still talk about mm-hmm. today. And so, you Thank know, you. Uh, I, we just love listening to, to you talk about this and we can do, the, I mean, hopefully we can have you back and we sure. can, we can, we can dive, dive into more episodes and mm-hmm. I'll, yeah, be, can, I'll be telling, you know, um, I'll be sitting in a park kicking pigeons and trying to tell you the time that I met Renee. <laughs> Long time ago. <laughs> now you you are correct. The lightning in the bottle is is an accurate uh, description. I, um, you know, many people think that I was created from Xena. Suddenly, I just burst, you know, the scene. I obviously, if you looked up my resume, I have a mm-hmm. huge history of shows before then, and so I've worked with a lot of different staffs, a lot of different productions, and they all have their wonderful things going on. Um. But in this particular case, because there was so much that was really kind of groundbreaking for the time, and I'm not just talking about the um, the subtext issue or the main text issue, um, I'm talking about so many other social things that we kind of pushed and we touched here and we tagged there. I mean, no no series I'd ever seen did an episode about the characters when they're not doing an adventure. <laughs> and yeah. that was RJ, you know, came to me and says, I want to do an episode where we show all the stuff that, that we don't see, like <laughs> washing the dishes and just being bored. <laughs> and it's like, okay, I, we thought that was funny. You know, it's like, oh, that's a funny scene. How would we do that? And we had some leftover footage that we had used in a previous episode um, with a giant. You know, it was, we actually had shot it for another episode and we didn't, yeah. we didn't, we didn't use it. So we thought, well, there, they're waiting for the giant. What are they going to do while they're waiting for the giant? And so RJ and I, we sat there and we literally, I remember we were in an office and we were just trying to say, what is the thing that nobody ever sees on TV? Arguments about dishes? How would we get there? And then of course, you know, can we cook with your juices? (laughs) Another one of those lines. But I remember it's like we were trying to think of what they would do just to pass the time. And, you know, what we didn't realize, or at least not on the top of it, was that that's the thing that everybody has to go through. Mm-hmm. Everybody goes through that. You know, you go to the doctor's office, you're sitting there. If you have a phone, you're playing with it. Otherwise, you're like, what? what am I? And that's most of life. So what is most mm-hmm. of life with these characters? And again, we were normalizing their domestic mm-hmm. relationship. Mm-hmm. But I had a little koosh ball, if you know what those are, the little rubber balls that have like, look mm-hmm. like they have fur on them. And, you know, every writer has a drawer with toys and knickknacks. 
And so as we're sitting there, I'm leaning back in my chair and I'm literally bouncing it off the wall, <laughs> bouncing it off the wall, <laughs> bouncing it off the wall. And then, you know, I look at RJ and I say, you know, probably Zena would do this, but she'd break things with the chakra. <laughs> <laughs> and so you realize that's what she does when she's bored. She's mm-hmm. like. <laughs> so, but no other series had done something like that. Mm-hmm. So we were given the freedom to kind of expand and go into those areas. And that became arguably one of the most popular episodes Mm-hmm. And I think it was because it specifically showed you who the characters were, not the adventures they were going on. The adventure was mm-hmm. out there, but who the characters were. So to be on a show where everybody in the, in the show were in sync with those things, that is an extremely rare thing. It happens on certain levels, like your writing staff usually bonds together because we're together, we go to lunch together, we do these things. And then the actors who are on the set, you know, they're on the set and they have their bonding and everything. Um, but you rarely end up with this entire kind of like we're, we're an extended dysfunctional family. And we all kind of agree on where we want to go. And we're all different enough that we have these different approaches, which will keep this from being routine and being boring. The third season, every TV series used to go what they call the third season slump. And what that refers to is that you've got the gimmick of the series. Um, three guys, three detectives on a boat. Okay. And they solve crimes. By the third season, the audience, which has stayed with you from the beginning, they're beginning to say, okay, it's routine, but I'm going to try something new. Like, oh, Moonlighting, which Moonlighting mm-hmm. actually did kill off our series. Um, <laughs> so every episode in the third season, they're, you're tiring them out. It's nothing really new. And what happens is that in some series, they'll try to introduce like um, a new character who's younger and more vivacious, or they'll introduce <laughs> a fluffy dog or something like that. They think that's going to change things. So we knew that we were going to suffer from a slump because everybody did. And in the third season, we had a a discussion about it, and we decided we're going to take this really seriously. We're going to dramatize this. We're going to play this incredibly dark arc, Mm -hmm. because if the audience is going to get bored with what you're doing in the third season, then two people in a relationship run that risk as well. So Mm -hmm. how do we deal with that? How do we have them confront it? And I was at, um, I think it was in Dallas, actually. It was... uh, Stellar occasion. Yeah, it was. In fact, I got Stellar Occasion poster up here. Mm-hmm. And I was I was in I was one of the first behind the scenes people to actually be at a convention. So I I say this with love. I'm in a room with about 300 women in comfortable shoes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Because you just wear high heels all the time. Oh yeah. Um, well, the funny thing about it was it was the first time that I was, you know. Uh, I was appearing in front of people and I wanted people to kind of know where my sensibility was. And at one point um, I said, I said, I find it very interesting that I, a straight male standing in front of 300 women who are hanging on my every word and I don't have a shot with any of you. (laughs) And so um, at that particular time, I told people, I said, now, um, was it stellar? It might've been, I think it was, it might've been also a warrior con, but in any event, I said, next season, we're going dark. Mm. 
And everybody's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, no, 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 no. Let me explain this. I walked over <laughs> stage left and I said, here's where we are. And then I walked all the way off stage right and I yelled, this is where we're going. <laughs> and that's what we did. So, you know, we, we kind of went to that depth, but we had to, the, the series mm -hmm. would not have survived if we just played adventure of the week, mm -hmm. even with the relationship growing. But in fact, the right. relationship would not have grown if we had just done that. Mm -hmm. Wholeheartedly so, agree. Love the dark arc. I remember that season when it hit and when like you knew and like Dayhawk came up and cause it started, I remember the episode where it kind of went into that arc. It mm -hmm. was like, uh, it was, I don't remember if it was Caesar or Bodicea or it, it started yeah. off like as an episode that I thought was going to be a standalone. Okay. She's going to go do this thing. Next thing you know, everything's losing its mind. And I was so excited. It's like, we're in that dark thing that's coming. I was thrilled. Loved every minute of it. Uh, so number two quick, mm -hmm. Oh, well, yeah, number sorry. two quick say a thing I was going to say with day in the life. I have watched shows that I love and I think I wish they would do their day in the life. Like mm -hmm. I would love to see that on so many other shows where it is like, they're always out fighting crimes. They've got all these things going on. I want to see what happens when they have a day off where, you know, yeah. it's, it shows so much with character. It can be such a great, so many fun moments to see the things that you don't see. And I love mm -hmm. that y'all did it. And I wish more shows would rip yeah. you off, honestly, <laughs> and do it with their own shows. And and we always talk about it. Like if if you're going to introduce somebody to Xena, that is yeah. probably the first episode you should show them mm -hmm. because it really does. It gives you an idea of a lot of the sensibilities of the show. It's a good intro to the characters, but also it's really funny. Like yeah. I, Steve, I don't know how many times I've seen that episode. I laugh every single time mm -hmm. because you identify up. with it. It's real. Mm -hmm. Everybody <laughs> identifies with. I mean, and RJ did such a great job. In crafting those particular scenes, especially with the blackouts going in between, you know, like cooking or whatever, and <laughs> and the idea that that look on on Lucy's face when it's when she's using the toilet paper from the scroll—I <laughs> <laughs> mean, everybody yeah. identifies with those real human moments, and so yeah. again, it's all about that. And the um, uh, the deliverer. Hmm. Which was the the jumping yeah. off point yeah. for the for the darkness? We got a lot of flack on that one, mm -hmm. um, yeah. but when I wrote that, I, I'm pleased to hear the way you responded to it because it is one of the episodes where um, one thing I really like to do is I love to let the audience lead themselves down the wrong path, mm -hmm. and then when they realize they've been on the wrong path. They look back because they suspect that I tricked them. And then they realize, no, everything was right there. I refuse to look at it. Hmm. So uh, a lot of times you do that by playing on people's expectations and you play on prejudice, you play on stereotypes, you play on all the psychological tricks, but you never overtly try to turn them away. You allow them to make assumptions. And, um, you know, the sixth sense uh, was an example of that. You know, for people, mm -hmm. I'm sorry, spoiler alert, when he finds out <laughs> you know, the ghost situation, yeah. I was, and I'm hard to fool on these things because, you know, I've got that analytical eye and I was in a theater. And when that revelation came out on the sixth sense, you know, I literally jumped out of my seat. And I went, yeah, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I sat down because he fooled me. And I realized mm -hmm. when I looked at the rest of the movie, when I went back and relooked on it, mm -hmm. every clue was there. I just yeah. refused to see it. Yeah. Mm. So with that one, I started it off doing what I had seen. This is one instance where I did kind of like I'm hearing where the fans were going on this because some of the fans were saying, oh, great. When are they going to do the Christian episode? When are we going to do the Christian episode? And so I thought, OK, fine. <laughs> it. I'm going to make you think you got it. 
Nice. So the whole <laughs> opening about it, the whole thing was obviously she talking about the one God, you know, the one religion. Craftstar is talking about that and the way he talked about it, his calmness and his demeanor. The Romans were persecuting him. And of course, the audience just said, oh, here comes a Christian episode. <laughs> and that's the runner. That's the B story. Because Gabrielle is doing her Gabrielle thing, you know, exploring these weird things. But the real story, the real story is about Caesar and Zena's hatred for Caesar and helping Boadicea. And that's what it is. And then, of course, two-thirds of the way through, you realize, no, the story was always Gabrielle. <laughs> because it was also about Zena's obsession blinding her to what was going on. And you realize that's not Christianity. That is, you know, because that's a one God too. You know, every um, uh, Christianity in its modern form is kind of a dual theism. You've got God and you've got Satan. So if you were to have an interview with Satan, and I have, uh, (laughs) but Satan can save the world. Talk to Satan. Satan would say, absolutely, I can save the world if you do it my way. If you kill off all the people who don't believe in me, we'd be happy. So it's the same philosophy except perverted. Um, So, so many people after that episode aired, I got a a lot of appreciative, but, you know, fake anger. They would say, I I hate you so much because I broke my neck swiveling (laughs) when when I realized what this was about. And I was like, good, I got you. (laughs) Oh, you got me and I loved it. And at I the love end that of it, I didn't see it coming. And at the end of it, there was a, a phrase that Gabrielle says, which has multiple interpretations. And she says, everything has changed. Mm-hmm. And there were two, two reasons, two main reasons I put that in. She was unaware of what they have implanted in her mm-hmm. at that point. But what she was referring to were two things. One, it was a callback to Dreamworker, where Zena told her, once you kill, everything changes. Mm-hmm. And of course, at the end of Deliverer, she kills mm-hmm. someone. Mm-hmm. Somebody dies at her hand, but it was also a foreshadowing because everything changed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I remember that. I remember Zena's look and it was, if I remember right, it was like, cause you know, she's Zena. She didn't get scared much, but I remember she had this look of, she was worried and she was concerned and scared. I thought, Oh God, if Zena's freaked out by this, mm-hmm. we're in for a ride. <laughs> so, and we were, and, and we were, yeah, and we were. So, Anyway, there you go. Like you are correct. I could just keep going and going and going. So. Well, and if if you're okay with it, we'd love to have you back. Absolutely. I, I yeah. and obviously I, you know, like you guys and get along and have fun. And this has been fun. I enjoy doing. Uh, it. Thank you, Steve. Thank, thank you so you, much. Steve. Absolutely. Such, <laughs> such a pleasure. You really are just. A ple- I could. We could listen to you talk all day. Well, thank you. Thank you. I I appreciate you guys. Yeah. I, <laughs> thank you for the opportunity and, and thank you and thank you for your stories. That's that. Just, you know, like I said, that warms me. So thank you very much. That was a delight. Mm -hmm. And I'm serious. Like, we should have him back. We should, like, pick an episode and just do a deep dive with Steven. Like, who better to do that with? Yeah. Who knows we'll come up with on those archives. Yeah. Seriously. I mean, it's if you're talking about episodes, specific episodes or things, you got to go with Steven. Oh, Lucy. Like I said, Lucy won't remember anything. Lucy might remember if it was hot or cold or she was hungry when she was filming that scene, which is also That's interesting. True. But as far as like the nitty gritty, yeah, Steven's deal. He, Sears knows all. He knows all. He's the real deal. And he just has a really good voice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. You know, mm-hmm. it's soothing to listen to him. Yep. Get lost in it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
Uh, well, listen, if you enjoyed that interview with Stephen L. Sears, uh, why don't you subscribe to this podcast and leave right. us a review and maybe give, you know, give us a rating. Yeah. Yeah. Preferably a good one. But yeah. we take constructive criticism. <laughs> yeah, we do. We don't like it, but we'll do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, if you want to respond on the Twitter, we are at Snopodcast with one D. Or on Instagram and Facebook at She Nerds Out Podcast. You can also go to our website at SheNerdsOut.com. You can find past episodes. You can buy us a beer. You can leave us a voicemail. You can send us a message. You can go to our merch store. Merch. We have merch, guys. Merch. Uh, and we have a couple of couple new ideas brewing. So mm-hmm. soon oh. we'll have some updates. Is the free cat movement still growing? <laughs> yes. <laughs> need free Hashtag cat t-shirts. We free will cat. have sentencing soon. <laughs> Justice Subtitle. will be served. Subtitle, all criminals mm. have groupies. <laughs> so unfair, Wendy. You just shot me down. I, so yeah, we have. So that was like our first piece of fan art. <laughs> is cool. listener, listener Jackie <laughs> created our very first piece of fan art, and it's uh, it's free cat as like free guy, mm-hmm. right? It's mm-hmm. in this, that sort of. Uh, it's a what would you call that? A homage to mm-hmm. that movie? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's great, Jackie. So I'm I'm very much uh, lobbying for that to be somehow a part of merch. <laughs> so thank you. Hashtag free cat uh, uh, is the movement. Mm-hmm. So join the movement mm-hmm. and go uh, <laughs> oh boy. show your support for Keep me. trying on that one, cat. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's it. The website has all the things. So come, come to the website, check it out, all that stuff. I don't know. I'm done. Okay. <laughs> You, wore, you just wore yourself out trying to try and right. you, justify you let me, your just crimes. Keep going. <laughs> I think she was expecting to start clapping or something for her. I'm yeah. not sure. I mean, it would have been nice, guys. <laughs> yeah. no, Slow I, clap. I I clap for oh, non criminals. <laughs> oh, Thanks. appreciate that. Thank you so much. All righty then. Well, <laughs> thank you for listening to our chat, our site without the fire chat with Stephen Sears. It was a ball, and we're gonna wrap this up. By saying, happy, once again, National Xena Day on the day of this recording. We are acknowledging it. Looking back at the Saturday. But uh, <laughs> thank you, Xena, for bringing us all together. Literally. She did. And everyone that worked on the show. So, <laughs> Till next time. She nerds out. She nerds out. We're girls that like girls that like nerds.